Good morning, podcast, and welcome to the Pierre Tillamet Show, where I interview some of the best creators in this world just for you. Guys, today, this might be one of the best stories I've had on the podcast so far. My guest is Carl Nesseler. He's a photographer, videographer, and expedition guide. And in this episode, he's sharing everything about his adventures on the Everest. How he got started knowing nothing about the Everest and literally saying yes to going all the way up. How he experienced a few times life death situations and got out of it intact. And most importantly, how those situations where many people died around him actually help him move forward in life, create stronger bonds and let him really to become who he is nowadays. So I hope that has given you a little bit of appetite. Just a spoiler alert, Carl has climbed the Everest in a self-sustained mode, meaning himself and a friendship had, they went all the way up to the summit, only used oxygen after 8,000 meters and, and most importantly, they were carrying all their food, all their tents, cooking themselves so they were in full sustained mode which is an incredible feat so if you love adventures you will love that episode at the end we'll talk a little bit about the gear he takes on the mountains and if actually photographers are better athletes than the athletes they shoot i think that's a cool question with no further ado let's get right into it and let's welcome carl to the podcast welcome to the podcast carl hey pierre thanks for having me it's a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's definitely something I've long waited for because I know you've got some crazy stories and <laughs> we can get a little bit into the background on how we met. It was at a travel conference for Costa Rica. I think you were at the booth in London. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, we met at the WTM and you were desperately looking for contacts and um I, you know, took some time aside and felt like I have to help this poor, poor photographer with the uh, old orange backpack uh, out a little <laughs> <Yeah>. bit. <laughs> That's exactly how it was. Um, and I remember you were like wearing a suit and everything like looked very like pro. And you, you said you were working more towards the sales and, and development and relationships. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then you mentioned that you climbed the Everest and, and something was not like really matching in my brain because <laughs> I was like, this guy does not look like he's climbing the Everest and he's making way too many jokes. And on top of that, I asked you, did you climb it with Sherpas? Did you have help? And did you use oxygen? And your response was? My response was very complicated. <laughs> we can get into <laughs> uh, the way I actually uh, climbed the mountain, but you're right. Uh, I was wearing a suit at the WTM, and I hope I didn't just look pro, but I was I was actually pro uh, at the time. Um, I worked in tourism for the past uh, eight years in many different fields, kind of started out on the visual content production and uh, many different little decisions and many different times where I said yes to things I wasn't maybe 100% sure of, led me to eventually uh, be on three Everest expeditions. And um, I ended up climbing it and summoning it myself unsupported just together with my friend in 2017. Oh, wow. So, uh, And I was wearing a different type of suit then. I was wearing a, a beautiful down suit. My hair probably wasn't as good but <laughs> as it was in London. But um, I was wearing a suit there too, a down suit. Well, where you <laughs> ask chatty on the mountain? I am, I think I've, I'm always chatty. Uh, I, I think I know when to be quiet or there's definitely moments where I'm, uh, a lot more internally 
uh, uh, occupied with myself or thinking about certain things. But generally, I would consider myself as chatty and um, energetic. I like to, you know, try to motivate people through that and try to raise the mood a little bit and, and, and open people up. So definitely as chatty in life, every t- <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> every time. <laughs> That's awesome. So Carl, tell me a little bit more about how did it work in terms of were you were you shooting for the expeditions or or what what were you doing or just leading? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I have to go back just a little bit. And I was like I mentioned before, I was working in tourism, and I kind of started out working in tourism as a visual content producer right around that time when people started shooting, um, you know, HD video on on a DSLR setup. Uh, I was right there uh, with them and sent out a bunch of emails and then started uh, randomly working in Southern Africa first, uh, shooting um, hotel properties, safari lodges, uh, their portfolios, uh, photo and video. And then I really wanted to work in Latin America. So I sent out more emails and uh, got a couple of replies and just really tried to get any any little job I could get. And that brought me eventually to um, Guatemala. And I was shooting uh, in Guatemala when I met a lady that was avidly hiking uh, the volcanoes in Guatemala. And many people don't really know that, but uh, Guatemala actually has the highest peaks in Central America. Mexico doesn't count. Um, And uh, those volcanoes are beautiful. I know you've been there, so probably your listeners have seen some of the material. Uh, And actually, that's a good point for me to mention that I told you to climb up the volcano and take a photo of the erupting uh, Fuego volcano. Uh, This was was the best (laughs) tip ever. Right, right. Um, One of the, yeah, one of the very few places where you can see that, uh, climb a volcano and then see another one erupting. But um, yeah, I did basically meet meet this lady there. She was hiking and... um, I hiked with her and I really liked her and I was introduced to her and uh, try to present myself as this fit camera person. And she eventually told me that she was training for um, an Everest expedition. They're, they're really looking for a person that could shoot some video and photo for this, for her sponsors. And I thought, well, I've done uh, a lot of things to get on dates, but probably never, (laughs) Never agreed to uh, be a cameraman on an Everest expedition to to date someone, but that's pretty much what happened. Um, <laughs> and and I said, yeah, yeah, no, I could totally do that. And then and then she said, oh, do you have you know do you have a lot of experience in the mountains? And I said, yes, which is not necessarily a lie because you know as a child you know we were skiing in the Alps and I did spend uh, time in the mountains and felt really good outdoors. But have I ever been in significant altitude? No, absolutely not. Um, but like I said, I mean, the things you do for love, right? So then I said, yeah, 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 no, no problem. <laughs> and we did a little presentation for our sponsors and they said, and the sponsor was like, okay, yeah, this all looks good. You know, you, that'd be awesome. We're really looking for this, like get one guy that could, you know, collect a bunch of uh, content for us. And would you be ready to go in three weeks? <laughs> and I said, yeah, oh, uh, wow. yeah, 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 I'd be ready. And what's interesting about this just a year before I was in a hotel room with my good friend and we read this article about, oh, the crowds on Everest and how touristy it, it, you know, it's gotten. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I was, I was bashing it too. I was saying like, oh yeah, this is ridiculous. Look at all these people going up there. This is so easy now. I think deep down uh, I, I felt, and I I noticed that um, it's always so easy to judge something that you may seemingly don't really have any uh, uh, 
chance to experience, right? So it's I yeah. felt like I felt very dismissive of it just the year before. But here, you know, here was this opportunity that presented itself. So I was like, yes, <laughs> I'll come along. And um, I'm going to the touristy crowded place. Exactly. Let's I'm going go. to the touristy crowded <laughs> place. Yes. Uh, with this beautiful lady that then turned out to be my girlfriend. Um, and I did. And then I, I went to Kathmandu. I landed in Kathmandu. And it was probably one of the yeah most impactful uh, visits of my life. Just landing there, the colors, the smells, uh, the cultures. Um, and just Kathmandu is such a chaotic uh, city. But people are so friendly and calm. It's such a it's a very weird combination. Um, I'm sure anybody that's listening who's been would uh, attest to that. And then seeing two of the main world religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, not just being um, practiced alongside each other, but really using the same monuments and using some of the same rituals, and it kind of uh, uh, is such a beautiful. Um, peaceful space where that's being practiced together almost uh, you know and and i have friends who practice both you know they're one of their parents maybe uh, comes from a buddhist background and the other is from a hindu background and they just you know basically whatever suits the situation here they pray to some hindu gods here they do some buddhist rituals uh, it was fascinating for me to see very very beautiful but i also didn't want to be one of those inexperienced people on everest i of course noticed and wasn't too naive that I thought, oh, I could just now go up there. So I did take a very extensive um, climbing course in another valley and on one of the glaciers for around uh, two weeks with uh, with a certified mountain guide. He was also a, a Sherpa. And when, when I say Sherpa, then I'm actually talking about the ethnicity. So a lot of people think that's a job title, just Sherpa. Mm -hmm. uh, but Sherpa is actually an ethnicity um, first and kind of later became this symbol of let's say porters or high altitude workers um, in the mountains. And I, I trained with him and everything went really well. Uh, it was, you know, I had such a good time and I've really felt that I'm doing a good job and, and I was super focused, learned all these different things, all these different rescue techniques, all these diff different safety procedures, climbing techniques and hiking out just pretty much 15 minutes away from the, the main road where we would have been picked up uh, in our Jeep. I got hit by a huge boulder that came out of, um, yeah, off of the side of the mountain, and no I was way. so lucky. Yeah, I was, and and the the thing is, I had this huge video tripod on the side of my backpack, and you know the tripod head was quite big, and the boulder hit. You have to imagine the boulder hit the tripod head first from the side, from like a side angle, but on almost like right next to my head but because it hit the tripod head first the tripod head almost like put push, pushed my head forward so that the boulder didn't like fully Whoa. catch my head and it just like it, it you know hit me then fully on the side and I fell over and my girlfriend who was right behind me uh when that happened because I had turned around initially and said oh this is such a beautiful light I want to take one more photo those were my words and then I was just smashed to the ground by this big boulder and she screamed in a way where she thought I'm, you, you know, I, I, you I'm dead. dead. Yeah, no, honestly, like it was, I, I will always remember that scream that she just let out and I was on the ground and, um, you got up and I just couldn't believe that I was totally fine. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, <laughs> no, there's a lot of adrenaline going through your body. Right. So I, I couldn't believe I I'm imagine, totally yeah. fine. I had my, you know, I had gloves on and I fiddled around with my camera. My camera was fine. I just, you know, the back of my head was bleeding because the video tripod kind of cut into that. And um, she was 
so hysterical because again, she thought I was, you know, I'm dead. And we got out of the way, you know, just in case more boulders would come down and, you know, sat down on the side of the trail. And um, yeah, I kept saying, like, I can't believe I'm okay. I can't believe I'm okay. All right. And then I slowly felt that my hand was, um, there was definitely a weird sensation in my hand and I took off my glove and um, then it was already quite swollen and, you know, bleeding and, and she's like, oh my God, but you know, look at your hand. But I thought, no, my hand's fine. I actually don't really feel that much. It's just probably just some scratches. And <laughs> we walked out. <laughs> and when we got to Kathmandu, the hand had swollen so much that I had to go to the doctor. But I kept telling myself, like, I'm going to be on an nervous expedition. I'm this photographer. This company paid $50,000 for me to go. You know, I have a big responsibility. This can't be happening. And I kept moving my hand and my fingers. And I thought, well, this is great. I can still move them. Can't be broken. I mean, this must be, right? This is perfect. I'm going to be fine. It's just a little thing. And then I went to the doctor and he said, uh, yeah, uh, wow, if you can move your fingers, this actually might not be broken. Let's take an x-ray. And then he comes back from the x-ray and he said, okay, you're totally crazy. Those three fingers are broken in a very complicated manner. We have to take, we have to do surgery immediately. Um, oh, God. And, uh, and then, and then I said, well, okay, how long is it going to take for it to heal? And they said, well, we're going to put, place these iron rods into your, into your, uh, into your, basically into the bone uh, to heal up those fractures. And it'll take five weeks before you can take them out. And then I thought, oh, this is okay. This is actually great because the summit push for Everest would, would have been in seven weeks. So just in time <laughs> for the summit push, I would have been able to, to pull them out. Um, this is great. <laughs> and and so I had surgery in Kathmandu, which everybody said, please don't have surgery in Kathmandu, but I had it. And it was brilliant. It was very good facility. And a nice side effect was that my surgery then paid for someone else's surgery uh, and, and Nepali surgery. Um, oh, I that's cool. I, I later met, uh, met a hand surgeon on the trek to Everest Base Camp who I showed, I showed him my x-rays and he said, wow, this is actually, they've, they've done such a good job. But what they did do is, when they heard that I, I will trek to Everest, which they highly advised me against, um, they said, okay, these iron rods, you know, we'll place them slightly uh, uh, outside so they'll be exposed. The infection risk is very high, but you could then, in base camp, with like pliers or leatherman, you could actually pull them straight out of your bone. It sounds crazy. What? Yeah, oh it's, it does sound crazy. And we'll attach... Uh, for your listeners, we, we we can attach an image of what my hand looked like, uh, just so they get a better visual. But yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. I want to see that. Uh, but but they do, you know, you you pull them out, and um, you know, people would always say, no, that's impossible. But there are no nerves uh, in your bone, right? So it almost when they do pull them out, it feels like somebody's just pulling your hand. It looks crazy because it, they're coming out of your hand, but they <laughs> are straight in your bone. So it it honestly, there is no. Um, not it's not really painful so uh yeah i met the other expedition members they were all like what happened to your hand i had to explain the whole thing uh, are you going to climb with that i was like yeah well <laughs> i kind of have to um and um yeah just went on the trek uh saw everest for the first time is beautiful this is definitely the most beautiful trek uh, i've ever done because i've done many treks after that uh, and still, this is my absolute favorite. Seeing Everest, trekking through the Sherpa villages, absolutely magical. Um, and the good thing was, well, the, the good thing and the bad thing was that it was my left hand. And people would always come up to me and they say, oh, such a good thing. It's your left hand. And, I, you know, I always had to reply, well, I'm actually a lefty. So 
Oh not, God. Not as good, but, uh, you know, anybody that operates a camera knows the trigger is mm -hmm. on with your right hand. So it was perfect. And I was shooting a lot of video and I had this kind of small cast. So I would always put the lens, lay the lens on my forearm of the broken hand and just have a little stabilizer. And that's how <laughs> I would shoot. Um, yeah. And I shot a whole little like uh, four minute YouTube episode for, uh, for my girlfriend. Um, and, and, you know, she was the sponsored athlete at the time. Uh, and edited everything on my way to base camp and pretty much anything um, was possible. I could use my pinky and my ring finger and the other three were completely, um, yeah, completely not usable uh, of my left hand. But uh, I, I'll tell you the, the hardest thing actually was, uh, sorry to being graphic, but the hardest thing was wiping my butt because honestly, try wiping your behind <laughs> with your weak hand so it's a completely <laughs> new sensation. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe that this is the hardest thing that I have to do is wiping my butt <laughs> with my right hand. Trust me. Think of me when you do it one, one of these days. Um, it is incredibly difficult. But yeah, that was the hardest thing. Um, and then, uh, yeah, getting to base camp, having finished all that, and then getting ready to climb, you have these uh, so-called puja. And it's a ceremony that the Sherpa do before they step foot on the mountain. And it's, um, uh, you know, they, they hang out these beautiful prayer flags into all uh, uh, four directions. And they, they built this little stupa. It's like a, basically a pile of, of rock that they will find in base camp because base camp is, is a glacier moraine. So you have to imagine it's ice and then these big boulders on top of it. So you're mm -hmm. practically camping on uh, uh, a boulder field, but underneath is ice. So within the season, um, oh, wow it kind of like moves slightly down the valley. So you have to rearrange the tents here and there, but you always, I mean, there's a lot of rocks laying around. So they built this beautiful little stupa um, and then with a big pole in the middle and then from the pole into the four different directions uh, go, go these, these prayer flags, which I'm sure everybody has seen in the five different colors, the five elements. Um, and then they, they have mantras on them that then will be carried uh, into the skies. And the puja ceremony is a Lama will come and he will read these mantras and you'll just sit there for three hours and it's this very monotonous uh, 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 lama uh, 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 praying basically i don't know if you've heard this but they just go almost like out of their throat they do this like <laughs> for, for three hours um so it's quite interesting and you sit there and you really uh, uh yeah of course uh, celebrate the puja with them with the locals it's very important for them everything is being blessed all the climbing gear everything um, and then uh, you can step foot on the mountain. And this was very exciting. You know, this was finally, uh, the expedition was about to happen. This was 2014. And then the next morning when we woke up, um, our team had already gone um, ahead to do a so-called carry. That's when they stock up supplies into the next camps. So from base camp to camp one, they were going through the Kumbu Icefall, which is kind of the most dangerous uh, area on the mountain because it's a glacier that breaks off and, and flows down the valley so that ice, uh, oh. those ice formations are very unstable. And I'm sure you've seen all these images of people crossing those big ladders uh, on Everest. Yes. That is that is this section. And I woke up the, that morning to the sound of a huge avalanche, which is not uncommon in base camp. You know, you, you're kind of uh, in this almost little bowl surrounded by mountains. So there's a lot of avalanches going off at all times and they, the sound multiplies in the valley. So they're quite loud. Um, 
and you know just woke up to a sound of an avalanche nothing special but then later i heard in our communications tent a lot of stuff was going on people shoveling around and um, then we learned that a big ice serac so a big piece of ice broke off on the west shoulder of everest and fell down into the kumbu ice fault so into that first section between base camp and camp one and there were some people uh, lined up on one of those ladders because the ladder had uh, the anchor of the ladder had broken, so they were fixing that ladder. Um, and they were so basically, there was a little bit of a traffic jam waiting for that ladder to be fixed. And in exactly that uh, area, this gigantic um, piece of ice like crushed down and ended up uh, killing 16 people. Um, wow. And three of those 16 people were our uh, Sherpa friends who, you know, we just the day before celebrated uh, with, and then. Um, yeah, it's absolutely devastating, you know, hearing of, of all of these these guys losing their lives um, in such a freak accident. Uh, I mean, this, the, of course, those sort of things happen in the mountain, but I was sort of new to this environment and immediately being confronted with something like that was absolutely devastating. You know, then seeing the helicopters come in and, and taking out uh, the, dead, the dead bodies on a high line. So you have to imagine there's just this long line coming down from a helicopter and then they would take down the bodies because in Buddhism, it's mm. very important that they're being cremated. So uh, it was especially tragic for um, three of the bodies, which, you know, we couldn't recover because they were uh, down deep down in the ice at this point. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, just super devastating time. Uh, we all called our families and like the set phone just to make sure to tell them we we're okay, because of course this was going to be in the media. And it was the first time that I was confronted with, inaccuracy in some of the media outlets that I followed. Uh, I followed, you know, I mean, I'm from Germany. Maybe we didn't mention that yet, but I'm sure people have noticed so, <laughs> from my weird accent. Uh, in, in some of the German newspapers that I, that I well, online magazines that I frequent, um, there were very inaccurate accounts of what had happened. And of course, that sort of Everest bashing uh, played into that, um, you know, them just saying like, oh, yeah, these you know, the, these Sherpas died on the mountain and of course then playing into the role of the poor Sherpa, you know, they, they carry all that stuff up for the rich tourists anyways. Um, that was the first time I was kind of confronted with uh, that sort of coverage, but having yeah. probably a better insight at the time. Um, and of course, this is super tragic and devastating that they died. Uh, I want to mention that high altitude workers on Everest I'm not saying Sherpa because not all of them are Sherpa. We said before mm -hmm. that's an ethnicity. So there's actually now other ethnicities working on the mountain too. Uh, these high altitude workers uh, make a make really good money for those two months. Uh, the average Nepali annual salary is $650. And they make, uh, if they have a little bit of experience, they can make up to $6,000. So they make uh, almost 10 times as much as the average Nepali person in two months. And now people would say, well, but they're, you know, they risk clearly also risk their lives, which is true. Um, there's all of them have to be insured. This is a, a, a common practice that's uh, definitely done by all the Western expedition outfitters. Some of the Nepali ones uh, maybe don't do that, but uh, they have a, a really good insurance. And then on top of that, um, they're being taken care of really well. And other people that are working on mountains and other places on, on this planet, they, um, yeah, they also, of course, risk their lives in Argentina, Aconcagua, for example. Those are just those are Argentinian porters that are carrying up your stuff, right? It is 
are also a very important aspect of the local economy to have those sort of jobs. Um, a lot of people have profited from that. A lot of Sherpa have been able to send their kids to private school and have uh, have built uh, lodges in the in the valley. Um, have really uh, been very smart about where to put their money. And um, if that might be an unpopular opinion, but if they the, the Sherpa people wouldn't be, or you know, these other people wouldn't be in those valleys surrounding those mountains. It would be Westerners doing their job. It would be more expensive, but that's how it works on Denali. That's how it works on other in the Alps, right? Those are all um, Westerners then then risking their lives and and yeah. you know fulfilling the job of a mountain guide, which is essentially also what the Sherpa do. So, uh, but going back to that expedition, that was, was very very tragic, and then um, that turned out to be the worst year in the history of Everest and they closed the mountain so we were not able to climb any further. I, I remember seeing it in the news and that, that's about the same time I read uh, John Crocker and Into Thin Air, I think. Yeah. And I remember reading and then I remember seeing the news. I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And so in a way, I mean, it wasn't in any way a blessing, but you broke your hand, you... And up there, there's this huge avalanche, and you can't go up anymore. So you didn't have to pull up, pull off your metal rods at, on Camp Four, did you? <laughs> well, uh, no, it, because the way you climb is you slowly acclimatize. So an Everest expedition takes around two months, um, okay, around ten days or eleven days to trek in to base camp, and you mm -hmm. the the very basic principle of acclimatization is go go high, sleep low. So you would try to force your body. Um, to produce more red blood cells in order to acclimatize to a certain elevation. Um, and then you do that by always kind of like pushing the roof and like, you know, putting your body into a more and more extreme altitude to set that trigger uh, so that your body is, you know, really freaks out and needs to produce more red blood cells to take more oxygen out of the air. And then you go down and let your body rest a little bit because what's ironic, you do need also a lot of oxygen to acclimatize. So um, you need, you know, you know, you need a certain amount of rest. So it doesn't work if you just like keep going higher, higher, higher. You need to, you know, hit an altitude, come down, you rest for around three days. And when I say rest, I just mean you're not really climbing, but I don't mean sleeping because sleeping is also not really good for acclimatization because then your respiratory system really slows down and you don't really uh, uh, help your body. So, you know, anything from reading a book to walking around outside to, you know, doing whatever uh, helps. But then you do around uh, two to three rotations on the mountain. So let's say you would go from base camp to camp one, sleep one night there, go two, and go all the way back to base camp. And then that first, and then the second rotation would be going from base camp straight to camp two, sleeping like one or two nights there, touching, we call that touching camp three. So you're just going to camp three, maybe you have lunch, you go all the way back down to base camp and then you rest. And then oh, wow. after like after like five, six, seven days, you you do the same thing, and that's maybe your final rotation. So you go camp two, two nights, camp three, one night. Then you go to camp four, and then you prepare for the summit, and you go to the summit, and then you go all the way back down. So that will be three rotations. Um, that's that's why it takes so long. And of course, the weather window uh, is 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 a big issue. So at the how, time, how did did you have yeah. to carry your camera gear when you were doing that? Yeah. Yeah, I had to carry all my wow. camera. I had to carry my camera gear, um, and I, because uh, I always had to carry my camera gear, my back was very strong and my legs were very strong. So I was used to, you know, and at the time maybe the gear. So this was 2014, but I'd been doing that since 2011. So some of the gear was still quite heavy. I mean, I remember pff, 
carrying around tripods that were way too heavy for for nowadays um and of course the cameras were a little bigger not as compact so i carried all the lenses all my tripods all the all the stabilizers i had with me at all times um kind of used a backpack that had the, those sort of like modular uh inlays where it was easy to organize but um yeah i was carrying everything myself and then coming back to a question of where did i ha have to pull out the rods um I didn't have to pull them out in base camp, thankfully. Uh, I did, however, because listeners are probably saying, well, you couldn't have climbed with that. I did, though, climb a, a, a neighboring peak uh, as a training peak before we were supposed to step onto Everest and um, did pretty well. I made it to the summit totally fine. This was uh, 21,000 feet, so uh, just over 6,000 meters. And um, when I was on the top, the one thing that happened, though, is the, those metal rods that were in my hand they started to get really cold. So I actually had to oh. start, start going down faster because they were uh, freezing my hand a little bit from the inside. Um, but when I, when I got back to, to Germany, then eventually uh, I went to the hospital. They were just looking, they, they'd actually never seen it in Germany. They're like, what, what do you want us to do? I said, well, just pull them out. They're like, that's crazy. Please sign this because we don't usually do this. <laughs> um, this lady was so, like, the doctor was so confused. She's like, wait, are you? And I'm like, well, yeah they told me you can just pull them out and they did. And it really didn't hurt. It's like somebody just pulls your hand and um, they were out. And then I did a lot of physical therapy on my hand. Took some time to, to, to get that strength back. But uh, yeah, pretty, pretty soon after my hand was, was fine again. That's, that's kind of crazy. I kind of want to touch on a few points here because um, obviously your first expedition uh, goes a little bit wild and then you're doing totally. the camera thing. How, it, what, what, how much more difficult do you think it is for the cameraman or the photographer on those expeditions? Because that's something I always thought about. There's Jimmy Chin, who is very famous, and uh, and Renan and those guys. And I see them like climb absolutely insane peaks mm -hmm. and really climbing. And, it, and they're like, yeah, it's minus 15 and there is like so much wind, blah, blah, blah. But I know they're also filming. Mm -hmm. Just me being in the street all day with camera gear is heavy so uh, can you can you touch a little bit on that yeah. do you feel like your you guys camera photographers are better athletes than the athletes <laughs> um that's a that's a really good point i think especially when it comes to um some of those high altitude scenarios it is incredibly difficult because you know you all you want to do as a climber is you want to get into a rhythm um you know you want to have like okay we're gonna i'm now i'm on it just like find a really nice rhythm with my pace, uh, with my breathing. But as a photographer, you always have to think about like, oh, wait, this is a really cool angle. I got to go ahead. I got to go to the side. I got to do this. I want to take a shot from here, right? So that in general is exhausting. But now doing this in a mountain scenario where safety is a very big aspect, you have to step to, I mean, you can't just step to the side. You have to think about that, right? Is there a crevasse? How do I, you know, I need an extra rope. I got to rope myself off to the side. I got to clip maybe like, drill in an ice anchor, uh, you know, a little ice screw and then anchor myself to that to get the shot. Um, and then doing all that, I don't, of course, want to disturb the athlete's rhythm because they're trying to accomplish something, right? They don't want to just like keep waiting on me to set up a shot. And, and that's why I felt this was uh, very, very difficult. Um, and then being in some, of, I mean, especially the Kumbu Icefall, which is where you go through those, uh, uh, you know, ice formations and I'll 
we'll attach some photos to this uh, so people get a better idea. But it's so beautiful. You want to take so many photos and you want to get all these great shots. But then at the same time, it's also so dangerous. You do not, you're not supposed to really stop there. You, you know, you're supposed to move through it uh, faster. So it's this very strange um, situation that you're in as a, as a photographer as a, or as a videographer where you're like, wow, this is so crazy. You know, I want to get everything here. But then people behind you saying, no, 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 we have to keep moving. Like, you know, let's go, let's go. This is not a great situation or not a good spot to stop in. Um, so you're constantly faced with that. That's why, I mean, would I say they're better athletes? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, but definitely right there. I mean, they're right there with them. Um, you know, it depends on what then the athlete uh tries to do i mean of course if you're following what the athlete is doing you know one-on-one -on -one, just exactly you're exactly doing the same as the photographer as the videographer you are doing um more in some cases right absolutely but if you're in a hanging down from a rope in a harness and you're just kind of filming off to the side and they're free climbing something that's different right that that yeah. then you then you're not really doing that but in those sort of like for high altitude climbing as far as i'm concerned um you are as good as an athlete actually Hmm. Um, and that's why Jimmy Chin or Renan, they are, uh, they were almost like climbers first in some cases, right? Then picked up the cameras because they were almost the only ones that could film these people or that could take photos of these people. Correct. Yeah. So they're, they, they just decided like, oh, they rather be behind the camera than in front of it, but they could, they could have as well been in front of it, uh, um, you know, that from their sense. ability. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's. I mean, for me, it's just super impressive, especially, I mean, I know it just from hiking with friends or whatever. We always say, oh, if we are doing anything for YouTube or, or photography, we say that any trek will take us like an hour or two more just because we cannot stop taking photos. And we're mm -hmm. just running in all direction. Or, or if I don't want to slow down anyone, like you said, I have to run like ahead of everyone, like way ahead set up my shots and then catch up with the group once they're done when they pass me so yeah. you're doing do you think mentally having something to focus on like like a job during those hikes or during those like expedition do you think it makes it a little easier in in a way where it gives you a task to focus on and you you don't get like bogged down by your by your mind just thinking oh why am i doing that you actually have a purpose I'm not saying people don't have a purpose when yeah. they go up, but I'm just thinking it's it makes yeah it, you have more purpose in a way. I feel no, this is a very good point that I feel very strongly about that you if you have something you know like you said that occupies your mind, you have something to do in those scenarios, especially when it comes to an eight thousand meter expedition where you are uh, away from your family, is you know away from your general usual environment for you know around two months. Um, it is great because it really keeps you focused. You have this one job. You're never really not doing anything because if you work with cameras, there's always something you can do. Uh, it really helped me a lot in those first two expeditions where that was my first, you know, my, my, my main focus is filming my, my girlfriend and filming her and trying to get as much material that I can get. Um, if you wouldn't do that, there would be a lot of downtime where you maybe, you know, you get in your head or you, you catch a downward spiral and, 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 and you know, you have some negative thoughts that you, you, you could go into this rabbit hole because there are things that happen to you in altitude that are just not normal. You know, your body is just acting weird and, and um, 
if you dwell on them and if you really keep going down that path, uh, yeah, your condition can really deteriorate. So I feel that having a clear purpose and having like a really clear um, objective help always has always helped me and really also almost made me feel stronger because uh, like I said before, if you're kind of just sitting down and reading or napping, you don't even acclimatize as well. So I felt, although I had a lot of stuff to do and I had a lot of things to just handle, it helped me even acclimatize better, you know, besides of being just, you know, focused and having this clear objective is I, all around it made me feel good in the mountain. I really never had any issues. That's, that's pretty good. I, I think, um, that's something I, I keep in mind every time I'm, I'm going up, even like the, the volcano. I remember in Guatemala, it was the same thing for me. I was like, you know what? Like this group is way too slow. I want to catch a sunset. I want to catch this. <laughs> I'm like, guys, I'll see you later. I'm just going to walk ahead in order to get my shots. And probably if I were not taking any photo, I'd probably, I don't know, I think I would get bored, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, look, there's, of course, on, Ever on Everest, for example, there is, of course, of course, physical limitations to that, right? I can't always walk ahead um, yeah. the higher you go, especially then when you hit the so-called uh, death zone which is around uh, 26,000 feet or around, you know, 8,000 meters. And um, your body just simply cannot acclimatize to that anymore. And it is slowly, and this sounds drastic, but it is slowly dying, right? You, this is not mm -hmm. an area where you, where any life could be sustained. So you are, you know, you can't always do that. And I felt myself, I try to push myself hard. And there's a situation, for example, I would try to like go ahead. And it's this very weird sensation where in altitude, sometimes all those alarm signals that you would usually get when you work out where your body says, I can't, you know, don't do any more than that. You know, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll, be, you don't really have those because it's like, I would do one step too many. And then I feel like all of my muscles just being completely depleted, just almost, almost like sinking down to the ground. Um, you know, having to really catch my breath. You can't even really like hold any muscle tension. So even like your bladder, it's not like a, needed to pee but just like you would have like you can't even really hold your bladder so you're like a little bit like, like oops okay <laughs> a couple <laughs> of drops coming out there yeah no it's it's such a weird feeling because just like a, a split second before you were like full-on like walking up right and then yeah. it's just like you you just did one too many or you didn't you know you didn't do uh you didn't coordinate your breath right so there are physical limitations to what you were describing of just always <laughs> of course uh, steaming ahead and, and trying to catch everything so it, that's also a very valuable lesson to really focus on all right what is it that i really need to get here um you know i have every single shot i take will cost me a lot of energy so i need to really focus on what is it that i want um how do i want to set this up what is it going to make the most sense actually the higher you go a lot more thought goes into it because you you know you know what the cost is of each time you pull out the camera and you pull the trigger that, I, I feel like that practice can actually translate into normal uh, normal life after where you're like trying to be very organized and mindful and like how can I maximize my energy whether I'm I'm dying or not uh, to actually make the most of it. It's I guess true. That, I'm, that's a good skill to have. I mean, of course, with digital, right, you, you tend to always, it's so great because you could just do whatever you want, right? You can just always go back and edit and delete and do whatever, but um I, I i feel a little bit you know in those situations i feel a little bit more like you know people way back in the day where it was such a hassle to take a photo and to really think about what it is that you want to capture um hmm. and then yeah for sure really really um 
really making making each movement count, uh, each action count. Definitely, that can translate back to to life when you come back. I don't know if I've really been able to fully incorporate that into my life because you know you have those feelings and thoughts on the mountain where you're so isolated from all those other influences, uh, but then you do come back down, and then after like some months, just because of all the stuff that's constantly uh, coming at us, um, all these distractions, and you know it it's difficult to really maintain that mindset. You know, I don't think I've been amazing at that, but I definitely uh, bring myself back to some of the situations. Uh, where I was in the mountains and, and some of those thoughts I had there and really try to do a little reset, but it's difficult. It's not yeah, <laughs> I imagine the, well, yeah, it's like it's like any experience, the integration phase is actually more, almost more important than the experience because if you have a great experience, no matter what it is, it can be consciousness, can be sport, anything, but the next moment you're back to your daily life, like, and you don't take the time to actually reflect or like, take time to integrate it in your in your mind if you want mm -hmm. then that experience is diminished in in value for um, sure it's it's like you take the most amazing photo ever and then you just dump it into a folder with a million photos and you're like oh where was that photo it's going to take you a lot more time than if you take that amazing photo and then you take a week uh, as long as you want to just work on it edit it etc before slowly dripping it back down into your your work uh, i feel that there is more power more power and it's more uh, fruitful in a way and you get more out of it i'm i'm curious carl when you were like in that death zone you you mm. were mentioning that every step is difficult is it like I'm, and i'm just trying to picture something for anyone listening because I think <laughs> most of us have never experienced that so is it like um when you you run for too long and your muscles are like completely like or when you climb for too long for example and your muscles are like pumped and you cannot literally you cannot grab something with that mm. weird feeling where you can't grab is it similar or no it's also not really because when you run too much that's like the lactate would build up and you you know your your your, your muscles can always get like sour it's not really that it is just that you simply don't have enough oxygen for your muscles so they almost mm. a complete so like you lose all muscle tension so it's like your body is like just kind of shuts down for this for this for, for a little bit and just you just have to almost like just kneel on the ground right you just you kneel there or you just put put yourself in some situation to rest and and recover through breathing to to pump more oxygen back into your muscles but they just completely losing tension um in a way it's almost just like uh how can i describe that yeah you just Your body's just trying to do like a big like, <gasps> and you okay, you're like you're like on the ground. But it's it's not like your muscles are hurting. You just can't hold any muscle tension. So that's why I said one of those so is you can't even hold like your you know your bladder for example. That, I mean, yeah. that, and that is such a weird feeling that I've never really experienced anywhere other than than altitude. Um, does does anyone speak uh, there or no one? Everyone's like I'm on my own word like. Um, you don't really, you don't really communicate much. And so when you, so once you're in the, in, in, you know, when you can go from camp three to camp four, which would be then entering the death zone, a lot of people already start using oxygen, but even if you wouldn't, uh, which we didn't to carry like, well, on, on different occasions, we can go there later, but even if you didn't use oxygen and you wouldn't have the, the mask on, uh, that supply you with, our, um, with oxygen, mm -hmm. 
you would need to really have a very good breathing pattern. Like that is the most important thing. That's okay. why uh, when people always ask me like, why do you like that so much? Why do you like go there? It, it is a form of meditation where you, um, you almost forced to meditate because all you can do is put one step in front of each other and then breathe. That is the most important thing in that exact moment. Um, and trust me, that is what you're going to be focused on when you're in that situation. There's not that much other stuff going through your head. It's just, <laughs> it's a, no, it is a very pure experience because, you know, you're just surrounded by this vast uh, and super extreme uh, landscape. And then all you do is basically you look into this, this never ending whiteness um, and just, yeah, one step, two breaths, one step two breaths, one step, two breaths. And this can go on for like hours, right? I mean, depending on where you are, uh, this, this is like easily like six hours straight where this is what, you, what you'll do. Um, and it's weird. You, you get into a space where time passes quite fast. You, because you're so focused just on your breath and on your, on your, on your uh, footing and coordinating those, um, you'd be surprised how fast uh, time will pass in that space. Interesting. Yeah, it's like time is different. Do, do you forget to take photos at that point or? Um, I think so. You, There is some, like I had one experience where I kind of did forget um, because I was so focused on something else. Um, there were also situations where I thought, like, I don't really feel it's a, I don't want to take a photo yet although mm -hmm. i should have and later later i looked and i was like oh i probably it would you know it would have been more of my responsibility to maybe to document that and maybe i can then go back to then my second expedition when i came back to everest after this catastrophic year of 2014 um you know coming back from a year in between of like training really hard and now being very familiar with mountains and climb I, i climbed a lot of other mountains in between and you know, know that I feel very good in altitude. My hand was great. And then returning with my girlfriend back to Everest um, in a much different, much more prepared state. I felt like everything's lining up uh, for us there. Uh, and, and then getting there in 2015 and being in between Camp 1 and Camp 2, it was a complete whiteout situation. So you, you are in between Camp 1 and 2. It's called the Valley of Silence. So you have to imagine uh, it's Everest and then there's a neighboring peak, Lotse, and another peak, Nupse, and they form almost like a half moon shape, like a little bowl. And in, mm -hmm. in the middle of that bowl is the so-called Valley of Silence. And it is a somewhat flat area where you walk from Camp 1 to Camp 2. And when we were doing that, uh, the morning of the 25th of, of April in 2015, um, it was snowing heavily and the clouds were right where we were. So we were right in the clouds. And then the, the ground, of course, is ice. So everything is white. And that's why we call it a whiteout you know everything's completely white you could see maybe um 10 15 yards ahead of you not more than that um and we were walking and then all of a sudden it felt like we were we were in the subway so it's you know in the subway and then the subway takes a turn you're kind of just like your body's yeah. rocking side to side and that's what what it felt like because the ground was shaking so hard um people were you know had panic in their eyes i looked at my 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 girlfriend she was She looked at me she, like she was on the ground. Even our guide at the time like was looking back. You, and you could see in his eyes that he did not know what was going on. Uh, then avalanches kept going off from the sides. It was very loud, but we couldn't see anything because of the whiteout. And um, we then, you know, after like 
this probably lasted for like 20 seconds. We got up, we heard those avalanches. It was, the sound was crazy. Like we we're looking at each other, probably thinking this was it. Like we, because you could, you didn't know, like where's yeah. it going to come from? What, what's going to happen? Um, but then nothing happened. So we just kept on charging to camp two um, and then learned of uh, the 7.9 earthquake uh, that happened in Nepal, which took uh, 9,000 lives all over the country, uh, devastated many regions of an already, uh, of course, very, very poor uh, nation. Um, there were like over 20,000 people severely injured, uh, of course, uh, uh, thousands of people homeless. And then we also learned that 18 people had died in base camp, um, four more trekkers, so 22 people in total died uh, uh, in and around, uh, on and around Everest uh, that day. And one of them was our base camp doctor, Eve, who was my age at the time, 28, 28 um, such a, a beautiful spirit. She made us pancakes before we left for the mountain. You know, she was staying back in base camp and, and was, was taking care of all of us. You know, you had, you had a little something, you would visit Eve and she would, uh, uh, you know, build you back up. She had such a positive energy. She was a nurse from New Jersey and, and um, volunteered to be the base camp doctor in 2015. And then we later learned that uh, the, the sort of avalanche that then swept uh, over base camp uh, had killed her. My other really good friend, Michael, uh, who was a cameraman for our expedition, he was in base camp too. Uh, he was standing almost like right next to her when that happened. Uh, and it was this big cloud that came towards them. And they actually had looked towards the mountain, but then they turned around and the cloud came from behind them. And it was, you have to imagine, from a neighboring mountain, hundreds and thousands of tons of ice broke off and created this sort of avalanche and debris field that like through this, like almost like shockwave of the ice crashing down onto the ground, like created this big cloud of, of, of just everything, right? And this big wind gust uh, that actually took out our dining tent, which she was standing in front of. So took the dining tent and, and, and swept it like 200 meters into the glacier. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was just devastating to hear uh, of all this again, death and destruction on Everest. Um, I thought this year we got it all figured out. Everything's lined up. Mm. Last year was such a terrible time. You know, now this time is, is, is the day. Um, uh, is, this is the moment where we, where we can, you know, get it done. And um, it just, yeah, taught you one more time that, you know, you, nothing is predictable. You know, you can be the most prepared. You can think of all the things uh, that you've got covered. And then there's a 7.9 earthquake that um, triggers this un unimaginable, yeah, natural reaction. So a very difficult time. Then, of course, in Camp 2, we were, we were like, people were, you know, kind of stranded there because the route was destroyed. I had to call uh, again my, my family, of course, at home because this was even worse now. So this now all of a sudden was the worst year in the history of the mountain. Um, it, I, I actually imagined calling my mom and it almost took me, it actually put such a big smile on my face because in all this death and destruction, they're like, here's a satellite phone, call your families. There's going to be a lot of news. You know, they, they want to think you're okay. And I call my mom and she gets, she gets on the phone and she says, yeah, uh, Carl, 
yeah, well, can I call you back? I'm actually right here buying these energy stones. Um, I'm in a shop buying energy <laughs> stones. And, and I'm like, no, 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 mom, look, listen, I only have 30 seconds. She's like, no, 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 but let me call you back because I'm just talking to this lady and it's fascinating because I'm buying this energy stone for you guys. It's beautiful. It really reminds me, like, you know, it was amazing. My mom was in this completely different reality um, buying an energy stone, which I guess the moment she purchased it already helped because we were totally fine. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I just got to tell her like, Hey, whatever's in the news, we're fine. You know, we're, we're going to get out of here. Just please don't worry. Um, and then, yeah, that was that they closed the mountain again. Uh, the second time in a row, we, we went back down. Uh, this time was almost, you know, even worse than the year before. Everything was completely destroyed. Base camp was, um, my tent was, you know, gone. I, you know, I tried to gather my stuff. Uh, I mean, it's not, none of this matters, right? None of the material things matters in this moment. You're just thinking about your friend that, that, uh, died and, and, you know, it didn't matter like where my things were it really, we just kind of wanted to get out of there. Um, and then trekking out, uh, it was so sad to see all those beautiful villages, the houses destroyed, you know, the people there who have lost uh, their homes and, and just the devastation. And that, that, completely took my mind off of climbing in that moment the goal of then summiting Everest which had never been a life goal right which was kind of just just fell into my lap and I decided to say yes to it was not on my radar at all anymore in that moment my my girlfriend already said she will never come back uh just too traumatizing for her and I thought the months after the earthquake like what could I do to you know how could I help the people how could I help the country and I thought the feeling I had when I came to Nepal for the first time, I want to give that to people. And, and, and although, you know, there's been so much destruction now, the one thing that they really need is people to come back, you know, people to, to come. Yeah. Tourism can be such a positive uh, engine if it's done right. And if it's done sustainable, you know, it can really help communities and elevate them. And I thought, okay, it's just such a small thing, but I'm going to try to do this charity trek, which I did and, and try to get people back to Nepal and show them how beautiful it is and how beautiful the people are. And, and one thing that was so uh, prominent in that time is in that time of destruction is the Nepalis themselves. They said, well, yeah, nothing is permanent. You know, I mean, especially the, mm -hmm. the Buddhist practicing community said, well, this is what we, we know this is nothing's permanent. You know, we will build it back up and uh, we're not trying to be to attach to attach to this. And, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. We're, we're still here. So we'll, we'll, we'll get it back up. And they, their sort of attitude really made me wanted to bring more people back to Nepal and be in, be a little bit of an ambassador for, for this country and, and, and what, how transformative it can be to, to be there and to travel around and to feel that energy. And that's why I did those treks and never really uh, thought about climbing again, because again, my, my girlfriend also was out. And then we also uh, split up eventually. Um, we're really good friends still, and of course, the intense time also that you go through as a as a couple was taught me so many uh, lessons. But then, eventually, after having done all those checks, and I helped another one of my friend friends in his village to to rebuild a primary school, and we built a library there, and you know that felt really good trying to give something to those communities. And then one of my other friends who, a Sherpa who I known from those expeditions, uh, uh, Fura Jangmu is his name, Fura Jangmu Sherpa, uh, him and I, we stayed in touch and I, I took him on as an assistant guide for my treks and uh, tried to help his sister to go to a school in Kathmandu to an international school. And um, I was really involved in the community. And then one day I got a call and it was uh, December, 2016. 
and it was the expedition outfitter that had organized our previous expeditions. And he said, hey, Carl, your Everest permit is going to expire after next year's season. So if you want to climb Everest um, and you want to make use of your permit that the sponsor paid for at the time, you have to tell me right now and I'll put you on the list. And the permit huh. to climb Everest is actually $11,000. Uh, that was wow. paid for me, of course, by somebody else. And then usually you say, so it's $11,000. And then usually you say you have to add another $25,000 for like the all expedition expenses. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the minimum. So usually, I mean, usually an expedition is like forty to 50000 and it can go up all the way to like 100000 depending on what services you, you want. Um, but he's want to take care if you want to use this permit you have to tell me now and i just replied to the email i said i'm coming and i didn't really even think about how i'm going to do that and i just let time pass and then it actually i just ended up realizing okay i don't have the money to do it with like an organized expedition and i feel like i know the people in the country well enough to just try to see if i can wing it and do it completely on my own so built my own base camp (laughs) carry up all my own stuff and um, my friend Fuya Jangu, who I'd mentioned before, he really wanted to climb, uh, you know, with me to prove the other Sherpas that he could work with with Westerners. And and I said, okay, yeah, we could do it together, um, you know, share all the work, and we could do it together. And then you know, so that he maybe then the next years uh, would be able to to get uh, Western clients. So that was his incentive. And and yeah, we've become really good friends over the over the years. So he said, okay, I want to climb with you. Um, and then we used his yaks and brought all the stuff to base camp. We bought uh, just rice, uh, some eggs, pasta, some lentils, and uh, we got a little bit of cheese from his mom. And that was pretty much hmm. it. That's whatever combination of dishes you can think of uh, that we cooked. We cooked those in base camp. And um, now I had another component because aside the fact that we had to do everything our- ourselves, I really wanted to document this as well. So, I mean, I kn- I-, I knew that really filming everything is going to be unrealistic because it's just that's going to be too difficult but i really tried to take a lot of pictures um which yeah. i did um i had my uh, canon uh, 5d mark III at the time uh and just try to yeah try to document everything and then our climbing up and down the mountain um really was great all the year all the experience that i've had up, up until this point but that i've gathered until this point really helped me out but then uh, uh, you know, of course, there are some moments that you miss, but then uh, it was also, in a way, a lot more satisfying to me because I felt like, in to my own reality, this is the way I always wanted to climb. Almost, you know, with somebody from that community that I that I've grown to love so much, and really trying to share all those different tasks of cooking, of caring, of, of building, um, and and really diving in and putting myself into that space uh, and trying to climb that way felt in that moment then so right and and all those other things i mean i'm obviously not talking about the death and destruction but kind of me not making it or, or not being able to climb made a lot of sense uh, in that moment um mm. sorry going it's back not- to though what you said about when when was i uh, when did i forget to take a photo what i did want to mention is when i came back to base camp after all that destruction of the earthquake the year before i didn't take many photos i felt uh i almost felt in a way um ashamed i didn't want to really like take photos of that or i didn't want to take photos of the misery of people although later i noticed by putting together my talk i noticed i should have done that more because then i could have uh uh, kind of talked about their pain or talked about the destruction better and Mm -hmm. and shown other people uh, um what those guys had to go through so 
yeah, I, sorry, that was actually the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine it's it's always difficult, and that's why also like uh, war journalists always say they they kind of struggle with it in a way you want to show the world in a way you don't want to be too intrusive or like because those yeah. are like the most difficult moment for people's lives. But I want to go back to to two things here. One, you mentioned your mom having like a parallel, um, c being at a completely different universe at the same time, which um, just makes me, I, I just find it fascinating, like how life is and like how everyone's actually living in his own universe. Because I, I just looked at my, my phone and on April 2015, I was in Seoul and I was shooting a wedding. I was training to be a photographer and you were like being... Uh, shook by a 7.9 um, earthquake on the mountain. Your mom was by energy stones without knowing that. Uh, uh, we'll never know if it ever helped or not, but it was just funny that she might have thought, oh, it could help my son who is out there. And then you take it, you think about it like four years later and you're on the podcast and and it's like all those different lives and all those like dots kind of connect sometimes. And I, I And when you look at it, once they're connected, it's it's just like so intrinsically interesting to me and and fascinating how it works. So in a way, it's like if we could bring out the photos from let's say ten people whose life are now connected and put them to get next to each other for the same time at different years, it would be kind of interesting to see how everyone was living his own life at that same time until it merged certainly living his own life but then the you know feeling that connection is so beautiful and being open to that connection then opens so many different other doors for for other experiences and and, and shared emotions and that's kind of where then my last expedition resulted into right that i that i wanted to connect mm -hmm. also all those different universes you know i climbed with somebody that grew up in a sherpa village i'm from Uh, Cologne, Germany, grew up on like 80, 80 feet above sea level um, on a farm there 20 minutes outside of Cologne. And then him and I just then all of a sudden fully sharing the space and sharing, um, you know, our thoughts. And, and it, it wasn't like a, a relationship of like, I mean, certainly not like, oh, you work for me or, you know, you do this now and we're completely isolated and we don't really, we just talk about climbing or whatever. No, it was two friends uh, trying to accomplish this goal um, for whatever reason, because I actually still didn't really fully know why I was doing that. I was kind of thinking like, well, am I proving other people that I really can? Because I myself already had envisioned myself kind of on the summit. It wasn't, it was weird. I really, you know, I was trying to figure out myself too, but he was also dealing with a trauma from the years before and he was dealing with some other things and, and just us uh, just being open to, to having that connection and to kind of combining our universes for that uh, moment in time was um the most incredible experience standing on the summit didn't really mean anything to me you know in the end it, what i take away from that is is uh, the adventures that we found in each other and and that was kind of the true summit of 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 really being open to somebody and also them being open to me um to connect no, i guess that's where the cliche it's not about the the end point it's a, um it's not about the the destination it's about the journey right Yeah, it is, it is. A, but it, it's a cliche, but it's actually, I think we could make this a fact now. <laughs> yeah. So many people have talked about this. Uh, we, you know, because, yeah, look how, look, if I wouldn't have then made it to the summit, which, spoiler alert, I did in 2017, um, 
what this all would have been discredited and this all would have been like like unsuccessful you know i i mm -hmm. really didn't i don't see it that way at all but that those that was one of the big feelings i had when i was in camp four about to go to the summit with my friend jungwoo after all this time we spent on the mountain after all this hard work and i just remember being in the tent uh, at eight thousand meters twenty six thousand feet being in the tent and just looking at that uh, orange fabric of the tent that through the those heart winds just keeps flapping around it's just like same sound just like the entire time for 24 hours and just remember looking looking at it and just thinking um that would be so sad if if you know this is just like not successful right if if we don't mm -hmm. make it all these people think we weren't successful but i felt already so fulfilled but at the same time i felt that i could never really well, for me, yes, I do. I do have that fulfillment, and I do already feel that we've accomplished so much. And um, it, but it still felt like, but it will never be complete until we, until I get to the summit, until I have that, like, yes, okay, now we did climb Everest together. You know, we were successful. Um, and I almost, it felt like I felt a little bit ashamed to myself because I felt like, well, I'm giving in to this pressure. But then it was just a very strange situation. I, I, you know, and I was very emotional at the time too. Um, just just weird I, I was questioning everything um although i had the certainty of hey I, you know me and my buddy here uh we really made this happen and we we went we went long ways against uh, a, certainly a lot of different odds um but we still have to do this like one thing so that everybody else thinks this is valid um i was struggling with that for some time for sure yeah i can see i can see how especially because um and I guess it's the same for a lot of people that I talk to or that, that reach out to me in the photography or video community where, or even anyone who wants to do something different in their life, they're like, I might enjoy it, but I don't see, or I don't have the social validation yet. Mm -hmm. And in a way it removes a little bit from their experience to be shared, not necessarily their personal, but the one that you will share because people think, oh yeah, that's great, but you didn't exactly do this, you didn't achieve that. Exactly. Because now people listen to me because it's like, oh, he's an Everest summiter. Great. So now he has the authority to tell me something, right? And it's and yeah. I felt almost like what a bummer. You know, if I wouldn't have made it, I wouldn't have been <laughs> no, but I wouldn't have been able to really share what was really the essence of what I did is hey, break your breakouts out of your bubbles, say yes to things that you're really not fully sure of. Uh, trust yourself, trust your gut that you can do things that maybe you don't fully have figured out, but just trust that you will, right? And also trust that if you are being thrown into any situation that's very extreme with another human, it doesn't matter what your backgrounds are, or it doesn't matter what your differences are, um, you'll be able to accomplish a lot and you'll be able to mm -hmm. overcome those differences in a heartbeat and you'll be able to really grow together into this whatever you know whatever the challenge is and just do it you know it, it's 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 kind of sad that if i wouldn't have made it uh, now i would have never been able to really share that or would it would have probably not have the weight it has now for some people right because they say well okay but he has everest so that is valid now i'm going to listen to him um yeah, yeah it's like strange. you have the stamp <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand exactly. You have the right stamp. Bam! You've you've been stamped with validation now. I've been stamped um, with validation. Yeah. Well, yeah. It. I guess it. That's why, in a way, people like dismiss 
award ceremonies where they actually receive an award. They're like, yeah, this blah, blah, blah. If you listen to the speech, it's all about the drone. It's not necessarily my goal was to get an award. They're like, we we made it uh, through that drone and, and you guys are like kind of recognizing it in a way through an award, but we don't really care. It's more about uh, what we, we had to do to get there. So I, I think that that's really awesome. It's a good experience and and reminder for everyone. In a way, it's also marketing 101. What is your authority <laughs> to yeah. suggest something to someone, right? Oh, change your life. You'll see it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. but I, I don't see any success right now. Uh, so why well, would I've, you say that? Yeah, I think it, probably you have to think about your definition of success. That's what I thought mm -hmm. about a lot. You know, I thought because in my early days starting out with, you know, video and photography, I literally, like I sent out 300 emails and got two replies. And I remember <laughs> when I really wanted to work in Latin America, that was exactly the case. And I got two replies out of hundreds of emails. And one was going with a group of retirees, um, of American retirees through Nicaragua for a week. So a bus tour. And they were looking for a photographer. And I thought, all right. <laughs> like I, but I, I thought, I'll, I can find something positive in that experience. I can learn something yeah. from that experience you know that doesn't sound too sexy um and it's also just like oh just expenses paid um but i thought okay i'm you know i'm gonna prove myself in whatever space that is uh, and i went on this trip and the second youngest person after me was 65 uh, and ironically <laughs> a lot of people actually were using oxygen uh, so similar to Everest, although we were just in Nicaragua on the bus, but a lot of people had uh, oxygen tanks with them. So it was, but it was fascinating, you know, it was fascinating to try to exercise your mind and look at them, look at them and try to, I was trying to answer, you know, ask interesting questions and see what can I learn from, from them. And there was so much. Uh, and again, this is just like, if you have a certain openness and if you exercise that openness, because it is exhausting, you can't, you know, you meet somebody, you, you want to put them in a box, right? You don't always yeah. want to try to get to know them or you don't always want to try to get to the bottom of them. But it is just so rewarding the more you exercise that and the more you try to see like, oh, what is something that this person does really well? Like, what are the thoughts that this person has that I didn't really think of? Um, and that was sort of through those experiences that were completely random and just me taking a leave and trying to prove myself, um, I got to that. And that's also how I tried to uh, uh, later define my own success is experiences, like, you know, really, really having a lot of experiences and learning from them. And I think that's what is successful to me is, is, you know, implementing them into my life or implementing them in my, in my actions. If I look at myself five years ago, right. I, sh you know, I want to be able to say like, wow, I was a completely different person then. Um, yeah, I think that's good. Like, I, I hope I can keep saying that. I hope in five years from now I can say, whoa, Pierre, remember when we did that podcast? Uh, <laughs> and now I have, you know, all these other thoughts. So I, I, I want to keep challenging myself and I want to keep, um, keep finding, you know, my own definition of success and also really believing in that, I think. And then that makes it a lot easier. If you know, hey, I've done this and this and this was really cool. And, and although maybe other people don't see that yet, um, the more you see it, the more other people will. Yeah. And and I believe life is like a book or a movie. You have different chapters, and for each chapter, you can have a different definition of your success for that particular true. chapter. Very true. So um, yeah, it's a moving target for sure. It's <laughs> yeah. like, all right, we did this. Now, what's the next challenge? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What is the next? Challenge? That's awesome, uh, Carl. I heard you're going back 
probably to Everest. Can we just uh, geek a little bit into gear super quickly? Yes. What are you can. thinking? What are you going to bring with you this time? Because, I mean, gear has evolved a little bit since. Yeah. So 100%. Um, I'm going back to Everest to film uh, a documentary and an athlete on Everest. And it kind of now combines all of the stuff that I've done before. So now it's a full-on uh, paid gig. Um, that I'm very excited about. I'm going to be shooting on the C500 Mark II with a Sigma Art zoom lens kit. So we're going to take the mm -hmm. uh, Sigma Art 2470 2.8 and then the 7200 2.8. And um, so this will be obviously uh, mostly uh, video focused. Um, I was, I'm still debating which uh, uh, like B cam I'm going to take. So certainly a DSLR that can uh, also produce some really good images. Um, I'm, you know, kind of really have to lean towards something that has internal stabilization and then also just some good lens stabilizers because when you are in those extreme environments and you want to, especially when you want to film, of course, you, you just kind of want to have that um, stabilizer in there, but also like some good low lighting, low light settings. So um, not fully set on what I'm going to take as a B cam. Uh, you, of course, have already given me really good advice there, uh, which I'm going to follow. But the main camera will be the C500 Mark II. Okay. Yeah, and for for um, the camera, for like stills, what I was sharing with you earlier is that Sony is pretty good just because I've been using it. It works really well in the cold and it's just smaller, which makes, I think, a big difference when you're hiking. Especially if you're going back with your 5D Mark II or three and <laughs> and all that Canon DSLR world, it's it's just so heavy nowadays. It takes yep. too much space. So maybe your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna look at all your how to shoot on an iPhone videos, uh, and then I buy the preset package, and then all of them are gonna look amazing, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> exactly. You don't even need to take the photos anymore. Just. Uh... <laughs> no, but it was it was funny because when I talked to the production company, who this was an interesting scenario because they had never been even to base camp, right? And it's it's this production company, and they give me this big list, and they're throwing out all the big names like the well, we're gonna shoot on the Ari, and we're gonna do this, and um, it, you know, which I like, I like that approach of let's try to get the best gear up there, let's really try to create something beautiful. But I just kept mentioning that the higher you go it is so important to be flexible, to be quick, to just, you know, have an easy setup because all the other things that you're doing are already hard. So you need to have mm -hmm. something that you can operate um, without any sort of like crazy complications. I mean, setting up a tripod even on, in a lot of those cases is just unrealistic, you know. So you got to think of all of that when you when you think of gear. Um, they will certainly have some other camera positions uh, and some other cameramen lower down the mountain with some some more uh, uh even even better gear but i will be trying to be uh summiting with the c500 mark ii wow that's a big camera i hope <laughs> it's gonna go well but yeah yeah get a get a small camera on the side like uh a7 3 a7 r4 for the, the the steel photography and and just you don't need many lenses you can just get one you'll be happy i'll be happy yeah just just need to be able to to operate it with my big gloves yeah well i i managed to operate the the sony snr3 with my um skiing glove but you know not the normal skiing gloves those are like more like what you would see in, mm -hmm. in the arctic for some reason it's like the first three fingers the smallest 
three fingers are together, then you have one. It's like oh, a yeah. Ninja Turtle yeah. uh, glove, actually. Yeah. So it's like three, <laughs> three things that pokes out, and I was fine with that. Well, the, the way I did it last time is I already knew that I can't use mittens, right? Because mittens have nothing that you can yeah. control anything with. So I, I actually used, and maybe for listeners that are doing this, uh, shooting in very cold conditions, there are these battery packs that you can buy. And they, with cables, they have a little heating element that you can put inside of your glove. And what oh. that does is, yeah, what that does is you can use finger gloves. And whenever you feel like your finger's really getting cold, you just kind of like press down on this heating element that is powered by, you know, you can put some like AA3 uh, lithium batteries in that little package. Mm -hmm. um, and that really helps, you know, especially when you're in super cold conditions and you're away from something warm, uh, you can prevent frostbites because we as photographers have always a tendency to get, get very cold hands because we can't use uh, some of the gear that would keep our fingers a lot warmer. Yeah. So I found that those, those electric heaters, they're, they're really good. Um, those general heating pads that you can just kind of, I don't know, they have this whatever powders inside, they didn't work for me at all. So it was, it was the electric yeah. ones that really helped me. Well, and it's lighter than having to have like hand warmer pads. And yeah. I thought it's more sustainable because you don't throw them away. Exactly. So you can reuse. That's awesome. Carl, uh, do you want to leave some people with like a little thought for maybe for their weekend or for the next adventure Something you think everyone should be mindful of in their life when they're trying to plan something ahead? I think when they're planning to try and pl well, plan something ahead, I'm probably not the right person because I'm trying to live uh, so in the moment. I'm just uh, not too concerned about the future at times. Maybe I could learn something there from your listeners. Um, but I think what we talked about, those connections, I think for the weekend, like go out and just talk to somebody you normally maybe wouldn't talk to. Like just like, Try to ask them something interesting. If you're in an Uber, try to like not do the regular like, hey, how's it going, blah, blah. Maybe just try to ask them a question that you've been thinking about and see where that takes you guys. Like see where the sort of, um, you know, a little bit of openness takes you. Uh, last time it took me, when I asked my, when I, when I talked to my uh, Pakistani Uber driver, it took me to his house to have an unbelievable Pakistani lunch and uh, kind of a new friend. <laughs> no, seriously, it's like, it sounds so, like another it, podcast story. Yeah, that's another podcast story. But <laughs> no, but but try to uh, maybe this weekend. Yeah, just try to maybe talk to someone um, uh, with a lot more openness than you usually would, and maybe try to ask them something um, that you're vulnerable. You know, display some vulnerability, and maybe see what a stranger could give you. What sort of input that you know, and where that takes you. I think that would be an interesting little exercise or or thought for the weekend. That's a, I think that is such a great exercise, especially because I think a few guests ago, uh, if we can say that, I had Chelsea Kawai on the podcast and she was talking about practicing courage. Mm -hmm. And she has a fairly big following on, on Instagram and on social media in general. And she said that she practiced courage through sharing more of what she has on her mind and, and maybe difficulties. And that in turn, it really created deeper connections with, with a lot of people or even with her friends than it she would normally and i and i think courage is actually the word because like you mentioned when you're an uber driver you're kind of trying to go somewhere so you're focused on your destination and taking the time to actually um practice that openness and sharing something maybe that's personal with a stranger it takes a takes a lot of courage from most of us it takes courage because I mean, for me, almost it doesn't anymore because I've 
done it so many times that I it's almost like a drug because you feel <laughs> no you feel it feels so great to then learn something about a complete stranger and to feel how they react to this sort of yeah you courage vulnerability openness right because in the end it's that's what's actually real right i mean when you talk about mm -hmm. instagram whatever if you talk about things that are on your mind that you you struggle with or something that is real that makes you more relatable because we are all doing that right anybody mm -hmm. is doing that so sharing uh, uh, uh that with some some people that you're not as close to is a beautiful experience that i hope will lead to uh even more interesting thoughts and conversations to the listeners that are trying to go out this weekend and do that well definitely everyone let us know how it goes if you're doing it please try it and Carl, <laughs> where should people find you online um my online presence is pretty uh not as good so i should probably talk to chelsea a little bit about that but it's uh <laughs> carl nessler is my instagram handle so k-a-r-l-n-e-s-s-e-l-e-r -S -S -E -E and uh, i'll definitely be updating some stuff before ever starts and i'm also i made a couple of small career changes so i'll be found online in a in a better way in the future right now it's still a little amateur but we'll see maybe pierre can help me Well, don't forget TikTok. You've got skilled oh, dance skills. Oh, yes, I do, I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carl, thank you so much for your time and everyone go check out Carl. You're very welcome. Thank you. Wow, guys, thank you so much for listening. If I can ask you one last thing, if you got any value, please share that podcast. It helps so much. Tag me in your Instagram stories, tweet me, whatever you want, but share, share, share those episodes. I think it can help a lot more people than just you. Now, with that being said, get out there, go shoot, try something different, try something new, and go say hi to Carl. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, would you like to receive once a week a free short email with my top five inspirations, photos with settings, gear I've loved, and what I've been watching, reading, or listening to that really inspired my work and my life lately? If you want it, just go to pierretlambert.com forward slash top five and you will be in. Every week you will receive that short email to set you off on a good vibe for the weekend and inspire you. Now with that being said, have an amazing day. I'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye.